I'm going to read Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We'll begin to walk through the rest of it as well. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Let's read five through let's read through six. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So we began last week of walking through just a series of some of the scenes in the book of Daniel talking about what is it like to live faithful lives in a land that's not your own, that's very foreign to you. And, and we're going to walk through this in these days, mainly for the purpose of as, as much as changed in our culture as well in regard to faith and, and some of the things that we are seeing on, a, on an ever-growing basis. And so how do we live in the midst of that? And so we're going to kind of, uh, over the next four to five weeks, kind of walk through just some different aspects of this and learn some things from them. So it was last, last time, we looked at a lot in, in kind of setting up of, of the fall of Judah and of them leaving Judah and beginning to be taken uh, to Babylon where they begin this 70-year captivity that God had told them was going to come. And so we Nebuchadnezzar had come... Uh, and the setting of, of Daniel chapter 1 is just after he's had great battle. Um, his father has died. Um, he has now become king. He's gone back from the battle of Carchemish where he defeated uh, the, Pharaoh of, um, the, of the Pharaoh of Egypt and also defeated the Assyrian king. And now he is the most powerful person in this part of the world. He rules all the way down into Egypt and he rules all the way up to, to Syria and even north of that, he is a powerful man. He has captured many, many lands, many people. He has made them their slaves. And now he has taken over Judah and he begins to exile them um, to that. And so Daniel 1 um, brings us to this place where this exile begins. Daniel would have been alive during all of the destruction in which Nebuchadnezzar was bringing upon Judah. He would have been a young boy. It's believed, I did a little bit more research and looking this week, they were pretty young. Daniel is going to, we'll talk about it today, later. Daniel will stay through all of the, a certain amount of kings in Babylon, and then the Medes will come. They will take over a guy named Darius, and then the Persian king Cyrus um, will be in power. And he, he is in the royal court for 70 years the entire time. So he's probably very young, 
Most likely, he's around 10 to 12 years old, probably somewhere in that neighborhood when he is brought over. So his last years of in Judah are seeing much war take place, and now he's, he's probably most likely part of the royal family or at least a, a part of some of the most noble people that were within Judah. And so he's brought over and he's put into this setting. And so he and his band of faithful friends as they get to Babylon, have seen all of the sin, all of the bloodshed, all of the destruction before they were carried off. And so this is pretty much all that they have seen and known in their whole life. Sometimes we say this, we particularly say this when we, when we say the word 2020, we say, what a year that was. And sometimes we have those years in our lives when we say, what a year. Well, in 586 B.C., For Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and for many others, and particularly these four that we're going to look at over the next several weeks, what a year it was. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar wins the battle of Carchemish. He gets word of his father's death, and so he goes back to Babylon. He's crowned, and as he goes back, he brings some of the captives with him. And they go with him. And so this is what was happening and taking place at this time. And so as I begin today, I want to pose a question that I posed last week that I think is important for us to answer and to consider. So here you've got young boys just on the verge of becoming men. um, Because in those days you became a man very young, about age 13. And so... You've got them, they've come, and everything that they've seen, they've not seen good kings. They've seen bad kings. They've seen war. They've seen the destruction that was brought by Nebuchadnezzar. And now they land in Babylon, and they're going to be in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Many things are going to change for them. Everything's going to change for them. And a question comes as this. As a follower of Christ and as a follower of God, how are they going to live? How do you live when a situation like that gets thrust upon your life. And so we're going to look over the next several weeks that there's actually a way to thrive in the midst of a setting like that where our faith and trust can remain in God and our faith remains strong. So we just read in those early verses of Daniel chapter 1 a description of the first wave of the exiles that were taken back to Babylon. Every single one of them were uprooted under the most difficult circumstances. They've been uprooted from everything that they've known. And they've been planted in a land that they did not know and into a land that they feared because of the great reputation that was connected to the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. Every bit of this forces them to consider their faith, forces them to consider how are they going to live in a time like this. Eventually, when there's three big waves and kind of a half of another wave that comes, and the Jewish people settle by the Chabar River. And we've got this up on the screen. Karis, if you can put that up there. I want to just remind us, this was either written in the middle of the Babylonian captivity or this was written sometime after that. This is Psalm 137. And if you would, follow along with me and let's read this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth. Saying sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song. 
in a foreign land. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites in the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you for what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. You can hear the heartache. You can hear the, the regret that is connected to the loss of living in the promised land. I shared this last week, but I wanted to do it again by way of introduction this morning. In 1400 BC, they entered the promised land. It took them about 40 years to finally get there because of their rebellion, but they get there in about 1400 BC, they enter the promised land. In 1000 BC, about 400 years after that, David captures Jerusalem and it begins to become the capital city of the people there. And then in, in 920 B.C., the kingdom divides. After Solomon's reign is gone, the kingdom divides. You've got a northern kingdom, ten tribes, two tribes to the south, northern Israel, southern Judah. And that takes place in 920 B.C. It's fascinating and interesting. It took 80 years for the kingdom to basically fall apart. From Saul to David to Solomon and then all of the other things that came with that. In 720 B.C., um, the kingdom of Assyria comes in and takes um, the northern tribes, it's called Israel, takes them away and they're scattered. As a matter of fact, so much are they scattered that, that it's really not known where they all ended up landing. Assyria was powerful and they were just scattered among the nations. And you can see a lot of the Old Testament smaller prophet length books um, addressing the reality of that. And then in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes back in. There's a rebellion. Jehoiakim rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. He comes back in and he completely destroys the temple. And I shared this last week. From them entering the promised land until the temple destroyed, it is 814 years of God being unbelievably patient with them. God continuing to extend his faithfulness to them. God continuing to say to them, I want to be your God, but do you want to be my people? And so God finally, because of their idolatry and their morality, scatters the northern kingdom, and now he's going to send the southern kingdom, Judah, away for 70 years. So the Babylonian exile is a direct result of the Lord's judgment Upon Judah. And so many people are cast away. We encounter four young boys now, about to be men, and they are thrust into Nebuchadnezzar's court. And now they're trying to figure out what do I do? Every thought that they have for their future has been changed. So, how do you live in a setting like that? And so we began to talk. Harris, can you put that next slide up there for us? We began to talk last week about what's called the geography of Jesus. And what I want to talk about and see and show us today is what this looks like. How do you thrive? How do you live connected to Christ in the midst of much changing? The geography of Jesus means this. We're all going to live somewhere. 
We're going to live. We're going to have an address. We're going to live on a planet. We're going to live a. We're going to live on the planet. Yes, we're going to live in a county. Is what I was trying to say. We're going to live in a state. We're going to live in a country. We're going to. We're going to live somewhere, and it's going to have geographic boundaries. It's going to be called something. Sometimes we're called to to go and move and live somewhere else. We did that for four years when we left Fort Worth and we went to Germany and we became church planners in Germany. And we did that for four years, investing our lives there. And there comes a time in our life, whether, it's, whether we are forced to live somewhere else or we're forced to walk through difficult circumstances, where we have to come to learn this, that it's not about where we live. It's not about um, status or anything else, it is all about our relationship with God. Do we live deeply connected in a relationship with God? So here we're going to encounter these four young boys who've only known Judah. Now they're living in Nebuchadnezzar's court, three years of intensive training to get them to buy into the Babylonian culture and Babylonian thought, and they don't buy into it. Why? Why do they not buy into it? Because ultimately where they lived was not in Babylon. Their lives physically were there. But their lives spiritually, which is way more important, were alive to the reality of walking in the truth of God. And that's the geography of Jesus. That our circumstances can be seem foreign, seem chaotic. We can be physically taken somewhere with a job transfer or whatever the case may be or walking through some other aspect and there can be aspects of that where our lives can thrive. And so I want us to look about what that looks like and so let's begin to do that today. I have one point with a tremendous amount of subpoints. okay? And so um, here's the first point. How do we live faithfully as strangers and exiles in culture in lands and places that are contrary to the calling that we have to walk in faithful obedience to God. How do we live in a setting like that? So in such a day as ours, living faithfully with God and for God and about God has never really been the easiest way. There's the crucifying of self. There's the putting down of our selfish desires and all of those things. There are pressure that comes on those who faithfully love the name of Christ. And as you look at the scan of history, life in Christ at times has come at great cost and great sacrifice. Our text today was written over 2,600 years ago. And as we look at these men, these young boys who will become men, we will look at what happens when the squeezing of our faith becomes a reality and everything in our lives is turned upside down. And so in amid tough days, God can and God will empower us to live faithfully to walk with Him as strangers and exiles in a system that is deeply contrary to our faith. So let me begin to give... Walk through principles. If you're taking notes today, here's the first principle under how do you live faithfully as a stranger in exile. And the first thing is seen in verses 4 and 7. Uh, and it's this. We need to know ahead of time, and we need to be the kind of people as believers who understand this, to know ahead of time that culture is always going to exert pressure upon us to conform. It just will. So Nebuchadnezzar knows this. 
If he can get the younger generation that has been brought from Judah to buy into the Babylonian culture, then he has great influence on the future of those people. And so if he can begin to do that, to rob them of their faith, to rob them of the practices and traditions and all of those things that they have grown up knowing, he knows that he's going to have a tremendous impact into getting the Jewish people to buy in to what he is trying to do among them. And so we need to do this. We need to know that culture is always going to exert pressure upon the people of God. Now, for these four young boys that we encounter in Daniel, two things come out of this. It was going to be a confusing new future for them. So as they arrive in Babylon, everything that they had desired for their lives was now gone. Every dream that they might have had of getting married and growing up in Judah, listen, is not going to be realized. None of that is going to be realized. Not a bit of it. They will grow up. And they will die in Babylon. Daniel will eventually live long enough to die in Persia. This is their fate. This is the reality of what's going to come for them. So much is going to be against them the entire time that they are are there for the rest of their lives. If they allow, listen, if they allow culture to become the predominant thing, the Babylonian culture to become the predominant influence over their lives. There is tremendous pressure today put upon our lives as well, upon Christians, concerning our views about certain things and our beliefs about certain things that we have held for thousands and thousands of years. Culture will always say this, Christians fall in line with the changes that have come. And we will learn from these four boys that that's not the response that we are to have. We are to continue to maintain our faithfulness in walking the truth of God and experiencing what He has for those who desire to walk in obedience. So for them, it was going to be a confusing new future. Secondly, under this, um, kind of connected with this, but culture, and I said it a while ago, has another plan for Christ followers. The next three years were planned out for these four boys, as many other that were brought into Nebuchadnezzar's court. Somebody else had a goal for their lives. And for the most part, this education plan that was put in place for three years, they, they weren't going to have a say about it, ex- except for one thing that they're going to try to do, and we'll see that today. But they're not going get to get to choose how they're going to get to spend that next three years. It's chosen for them, and they're going to be told what they are to study and what they are to learn. There has been much of a cultural shift that we are seeing that, is, that has arrived in our day and time. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar is just going to give three years, but we've seen in our lifetime that many, many years ago, decades ago, there was an aim in the secular culture to get our nation to where it is today to embrace many of the things that some of us, we've talked about this, never thought that we would talk about and we would never see. But they're here. Those things have arrived. And it's a, it's a plan that's been put in place by the liar of liars, Satan himself, who wants to do everything that he can to keep you and I from coming to know 
the incredible blessing that it is to walk with God. Four ways that Nebuchadnezzar was going to try to influence these young boys and, and our culture will do the same to us. And here's the first thing that he does. You see it in the first part of verse 5. It says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to say to the young boys, I am your provider. I'm the one that's going to take care of you. I'm giving you food. I'm giving you a special wine. And, and so I'm going to take care of you. We live in a day and time where government has become such a place where government says, I'm your provider. I'm the one that's going to take care of you. And I remind us this morning on this Thanksgiving weekend that God is still our provider. Amen? He is our provider. So I got my phone out this morning as I was walking back through the notes at about 6.30 this morning. And I want you to hear this. Our national debt in America... It, it, the number just grow astronomically is thirty one trillion three hundred and thirty five billion five hundred and seventy four million six hundred and nine thousand three hundred and thirty nine dollars as of six thirty this morning. That represents of every single person that lives in America today right at ninety four thousand dollars per person. Of national debt. Government that does that and spends money that way cannot be people's provider. God can. That's it. And so this pressure will continue to come. It happens in every nation, in every place where government says, I am the answer and I have the answers for you. Only God is life. Only God can give life. God owns the world, right? He has every resource. So ultimately, God becomes our provider. But Nebuchadnezzar wanted to teach the four boys, I'm your provider. I'm providing you the food. Second way the Babylon culture was exerting pressure upon them was cultural educational immersion. So they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to be brought in before the king. And he was going to grill them. He was going to test them to see which ones stood out among others. Three years of intense learning of all things of Babylon. We live in a day and time as well. If we're not careful, we will buy into the education that our nation, that our culture is trying to teach us. So how does ours... Educate our younger generation. Well, media is a big one. Social media is another big one. Movies and television. Students in the room, kids in the room, I'll tell you a little story. When I was a kid, we used to watch television shows. And there were actually rules on television that husbands and wives couldn't be shown sleeping in the same bed. They had to have separate beds. Now our television shows push all kinds of sinful agendas and things that would have never even been thought of when I was a kid to even think about putting that on a a show have become absolutely normal in every kind of way. Music has a great influence in teaching and educating a a culture to be more secular and, 
anti-godly. Government participates in that as well in laws that are made. Sports does this. I don't know if you know this or not, but our soccer team is in Qatar playing something called the World Cup. But they've changed. When they're not on the field and they're where they're sleeping, they've changed the USA logo to not be red, white, and blue. It's the homosexual colors. That's what they put. And so they're wearing this to give protest and to push an agenda about things. A point in all of this is this, is, is the point that we're looking at. We need to know ahead of time. We just need to understand this, that culture is constantly going to be pushing Christians to adapt themselves to culture. And we as God's people cannot give in to the pressure that culture continues to exert upon his people. Here's the third thing. Nebuchadnezzar knew this. I I can't allow them to keep their identity as Jewish people. So what they did is they changed their names. We know their Babylonian names. We call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Belteshazzar. That's the names that they were changed to. Daniel's name means God is my judge. His name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel's prince, which was a god of the Babylonians called Marduk, and so they tried to change his name to be connected to that. Hananiah's name was Yahweh is gracious. His name was changed to Shadrach, which means the commander of Aku, which was the Babylonian moon god. Mishael's name is, means God is without equal. They changed his name to Meshach, which means the power of Aku, the moon god. Azariah's name means Yahweh is our helper. His name was changed to Abednego, servant of Nebo, which was the god of the Babylonians of writing and wisdom. Why do you change a person's name? Why do you force that upon them? Because you want to change their identity. And I think this is what we've seen a lot in our country is that culture has exerted a lot of pressure upon Christians. And there's, there's, a, there's a loss of identity that we have been made by God and that God has a purpose for us. And when people buy into the culture more and more and more, there's a continual loss of our identity and who we are as God's true people. And culture's just going to do this. Ultimately, why did they want to change the name? Because ultimately they wanted to steal their faith. If you can still their faith that they will not worship Yahweh anymore and begin to worship the Babylonian gods, then Nebuchadnezzar knows that he has destroyed faith. So the first principle is a little more detail. And I just remind us, we must just continually know this. Culture will continually, I hope you agree, culture is not going to one day go, oh, we don't want to put pressure on Christians anymore. That is not going to be their response. Culture will continue to exert its pressure that you and I would fall in line with the culture's lies and the agendas that they have. So here's what the young boys know. Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved. So he knew what the plan was. Three years of this. But Daniel resolved in the very beginning that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. 
So the four young men know this. Secondly, here's the second principle this morning. Is that we as Christ followers always have a choice to live biblically regardless of what the culture is saying and what the culture is pushing. We always have a choice to live biblically. So these four young boys know that they have a choice and they do not want to assimilate into Babylon culture. They want to live for God. They, they want to... <coughs> and they know it's going to take a risk for them to do this, but they're going to give it a shot. They're going to, they're going to risk something and try to walk with God. They're very wise. I'm very impressed with them. They obviously must have talked among themselves. Let's talk to Ashpenaz, the guy that's in charge of us, the chief eunuch, and let's ask him, can we eat something different and can this be different for us? Because we don't want to live and we don't want to buy in to everything that's been pushed upon us. Hear this, church, this morning, life point. We as God's people need to know that no matter how ungodly, how perverse, how unbiblical the rulers and kings of culture are, they are no match for the power and sovereignty of God to sustain His people and to keep them strong and for us to walk in the truth of His Word. His kingdom endures above all kingdoms, and it will endure, by the way. The gates of hell will not what? Prevail against the church. He will keep His kingdom alive and awake in, regardless of the growing ungodliness of our day. This becomes where the great ground of our faith rests. God will sustain his people if his people will walk with him. He will do that. Instead of feeling sorry for themselves, they resolve under God's leadership to maintain their faith and allow God's influence to be powerful over their lives. It's an amazing picture of 10 to 12-year-old boys who are not going to buy into everything that they're going to be taught. They're going to be forced to be educated. They're going to be forced to to learn a new language and learn a new culture, but they're not going to let it taint their lives. You see, it's those who refuse to live in line with the world system who learn how to navigate in the world system and maintain godliness in their lives. So they resolve to not allow the three-year education reform of Nebuchadnezzar to change their faith and to rob their faith and for them to lose their identity. I read, I read an article a number of years ago and I wanted to share it this morning. A guy named Richard Dahlstrom wrote a book called Colors of Hope. He describes the safety first mentality that sometimes enters into the Christian life. According to his perspective, He says the key to living well is told this all the time is to live safely. Then he writes this. Lock your doors at night. Get an alarm system. Save 10% and make sure your investment is insured. Take your vitamins, minerals, omega-3s, ginkgo bilboa, and St. John's wort. Eat lots of soluble fibers. Exercise. Get eight hours of sleep. Go to church regularly, being certain to drive carefully both on the way there and on the way home. And it's best if your car is the biggest because then you are the safest. Don't go on mission trips. 
to places where you might contract staph infection, malaria, intestinal parasites, or faced a terrorist plot. Risky hobbies? Forget it. Read books instead. Eat organic and get a colonoscopy. There, he said, that should do it. Now you're safe, right? Well, not really. One of the at one time in my life, I was an athlete, and I loved basketball. One of my great idols was a guy named Pistol Pete Maravich, unbelievable basketball player. He had retired from the NBA, was at a church playing basketball one day, and at 40, died of a heart attack right there. There's no guarantee about anything. There's no guarantee about safe He didn't smoke or drink. Meanwhile, the oldest woman on record named Jean Clement died at age 122, stopped smoking at age 117. For this reason, she could no longer see well enough and safely to light her cigarettes. And so she quits. He closes the article and says this, this safety first posture among Christians is wrong on several levels. First, and most significantly, the good life is never defined by Jesus in terms of the length of that life or the comfort of that life. To the contrary, Jesus says that those who seek to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their, lose their lives, spilling their life out generously in service to others and to His glory, actually find life. In these four seems to be just four young Hebrew boys have made a decision to know this. I always have a choice to choose to walk with God. doesn't matter how much pressure is put on me. I have a choice. And at times that biblical choice leads us to the third thing, a willingness to embrace risk and to count the cost. So look at me in 8 through 14. I want to read that now. So Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the user of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And so Daniel said to the steward of whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test us for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food (coughs) be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. And verse 14 says, So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. I want to give four short principles that come out of these verses. The first one is simply this. If we're going to make it and we're going to navigate our way through this, we will do so by resolving and deciding ahead of time, that we will not defile our lives. We will not live in a way that would go contrary to God's heart and God's 
purpose for us. That we would resolve not to defile our lives with the lies of our culture and the things that are being pushed. I want to note this about these four boys. They are not looking back. They're not, oh, if we could only go back to Judah, things would be better. They know they're not going to go back to Judah. So they have to do this. I have one choice. I have to look to the future and I have to decide how am I going to live moving forward knowing that all of this pressure is going to be put on me. So they don't look back. They look forward and they resolve as they look forward to live differently than everybody else around them. You see, our convictions should lead us to stand strong and to even confront at times culture, not to complain about culture. We're pretty good at complaining about culture, aren't we? We're pretty good at that. But what if we took another posture? Instead of just complaining about it, of of recognizing what's there and then living differently and at times speaking out against the things that we see. And living by faith is a daily choice and it strengthens us. But compromise is also a choice. And compromise will bring spiritual softness to our lives. So they resolve not to defile themselves. Secondly, they resolve to live obediently. Why did they not want to eat the king's food? What was the king going to offer them? He was going to offer them certain meats that they knew in the law that they were not supposed to eat. So the way that they know how to live obediently and the way that you and I need to know how to live obediently is to know what the written text has to say to our lives about how we are to live. So they're not, they don't want to eat the king's food. Probably some of it's sacrificed to idols probably, though that's a New Testament theme that Paul deals with in the church in Corinth. But it would have been true in the day with them. And so they're like, we don't want to defile ourselves. We want to walk in obedience to what the law says about the kind of food that we can eat. And Leviticus 11 talks about that, types of food that they could eat and types of food that they could not eat. And so they obviously, I believe, as young boys, someone had taught them the truth of the law. And they knew Leviticus 11, and they did not want to defile themselves. And so they wanted to live obedient to the word. We should be willing in our lives. I love what Daniel and the, and the other guys do here. Examine our lives. We should be the kind of believers to live in our workplace and to live in our neighborhoods to say, look at my life. Look how I live. Examine my life. I get up on Sunday mornings and I go to church and worship with God's people. I gather in small group to study the word. Um, I go on mission trips, whatever the case may be. So world around me that are in my world, examine my life and see how God is at work in my life. We should be confident enough in our faith to say to the world, look at us, examine us. Not in an arrogant way, but to say this, and this is what the four boys do. Ashpenaz, after, listen, test us for 10 days. We're willing to be observed. And we want to show you that our God will actually make us more healthy because we're going to walk in obedience to what we know that the Scripture has to say. And so test us. We're willing to be tested. And I believe if we truly trusted God, we would be willing to be examined by others in regard to the authenticity of our faith. By the way, 
All of this was initiated by Daniel himself. For he was not ashamed to live differently in a strange, strange land that was already trying to coerce him to be different, to embrace the foreign culture's ways. The four had no desire to fit in. Another principle to note that I'll put here that I think is really important is we ought to surround ourselves with friends and people who have strong biblical resolve. We need those people in our lives. We need to be that kind of person so that we can be that kind of person in other people's lives. So Daniel seems to be kind of the leader there, but he's got three friends supporting him in his great resolve. I've worked at a couple of places, bigger churches in my day, where there's a big conference room, big table, Sometimes you'd have committee meetings in these rooms. Heads of the committee would come in and they would kind of talk about things that are going on. And I want to kind of, kind of paint a picture about this. You've probably seen that before, big conference table, committees. who have perspectives on different areas. But I want you to see the conference table as our heart. And inside of our lives, if we're not careful, we have a lot of committees making decisions for us. And sometimes they get cross if you Christians disagree. Did you know that? They disagree. And so sometimes some of these committees that we allow to be in our life have disagreement with one another over our heart. They argue. They debate. They vote. They're agitated and upset. And they never come to a unanimous decision of what is best for us. And so we, here's what we do. We tell ourselves, you know what? I'm just this way because I'm so busy. I've got so many hats I have to put on. I have so many things that are in my life, so many things that I need to do. I'm so busy with just a tremendous amount of responsibilities. But the truth of the matter is, is we're just divided. We don't have a singular focus and we're hesitant. We, we're shackled by the voices that we allow to surround our heart and speak into our heart. And then somebody might say, well, here's the deal. I need to allow Jesus in the room and he can take a seat around my heart with all the other committee captains. And he just becomes another voice. And listen to this, church. When we, just, when we allow Jesus to be a, just a voice among lots of other voices in our lives, he becomes complicated. And there's, there's an unfocusedness to our life in that moment. The only way to make our lives work is this, is to say to him, my life isn't working. This system is not working. So would you come into the room and fire everybody and get rid of them? Push them out of the room. Get them gone away from my heart. And I give myself totally to you. Your voice, your way, your purposes. I'm your responsibility now. Jesus, will you run my life and guide my life? You see, sometimes in our lives, that has to happen. Can you picture your life in that description? I can, my life at times. Way too many voices 
telling me what to do, but there is only one voice that I need. And these young boys got to that place. They resolved that they would live obediently. And then with this, they were willing to embrace the risk to preserve their God-centered identity. They did not want to lose their identity. And we are to be committed to our core convictions about things far more than we ever are to be about comfort. So they refused to lose their identity with God. For for the identity of the Babylonian culture, they did not want to do that. And listen, we are being watched, aren't we? Christians are being watched constantly, particularly in in today's world, constantly being um, analyzed for our views of things, our convictions about things. This is going to continue to take place. And so, so at the end of this, we're going to see this, that, that they're like, test us, Ashpenaz, test us and see what God does. And so for 10 days, what does Ashpenaz do? He watches them. Okay, how's this working in the, among these, these young boys? And at the end of the 10 days, he's like, yeah, it worked. There's something different about these boys. And then at the end of the three years, Nebuchadnezzar is going to say those exact words. These four are different. They rise above their culture that we brought into our culture. These boys are different. You see, ultimately, here's the reality is that God grants favor to the obedient. He grants favor to the obedient. That says it in verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion. Courage comes in the lives of those who have deeply settled the course in which they are going to live. And they will fight against the change the culture tries to push by not wavering and not doubting. Look with me in 15 through 21. So at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. By the way, let me just stop there for a second. This Hebrew word actually means not just vegetables, but nuts and grains and things of that nature. This is, this is what they were eating. Look at 17. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them, notice the difference here, when God's favor falls upon our life because we want to walk in holiness, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. You know how big his kingdom was? It went all the way down into Egypt. And all the way up north of where he was. He could not find, listen to that. He could not find now anybody in the kingdom of any age 
that were better than these 15 and 16-year-old boys now after three years. God grants favor to those who walk in obedience. So we'll stop there just for a second. And I want to talk about what happens when resolve sticks in our lives and we live that way. There's a result that comes. The first result is this, is that you gain wisdom by faithfully walking in the truth of God's word. So they, they do this. They, they learn, we're going to walk in God's way. We're going to ask Ashpenaz, can we do this? He, he grants that. He sees that, that favor has come upon them. And so they gain wisdom. And you gain wisdom not just by knowing things. You gain wisdom by walking in things in the truth. And so they, they're a young age. And so they, they live faithfully to God. And God blesses them and gives them favor. And they experience faithfulness. So my second ministry job was in the city of Canyon, Texas, up in the Panhandle. I was a youth minister at First Baptist Canyon there. Pam and I had gotten the job right before um, we had gotten married. And, and uh, it was an incredible experience being in a small town, one school town, and, and just there and just pouring your life into the city. So I had a couple of guys in the youth group who said, we want to learn how to share our faith with our friends. We've got a lot of friends that don't know the Lord, and we want them to know the Lord. So I undid my, um, many of you know this, I, um, my name is Phineas Numbers. I didn't know if you all know that or not, but um, uh, that's my Facebook name. Um, but I, I one time had a, a Doak Taylor Facebook page, and so I opened it up last night and went back and found f- four guys, and particularly three guys, in those days, back in 1989. That was a long time ago. 1989. So the first time we went out was on a Tuesday night, and we went to some friends' houses, and we went in, and I shared the gospel with their friends. At the end of the night, four of their friends had trusted Christ. So we said, well, let's do this next Tuesday. They were kind of hooked. They thought this is a pretty good thing. So we get to the first house, and I said, okay, I'm staying in the car. Y'all are going in. No, no. Yeah, no, y'all are going in. We did this over a period of about two months. The next month, we baptized 38 students. It's the only time in my life I've really seen a significant move of God. And they led 34 of the 38 themselves to faith. I found them last night on Facebook, and they're still walking with the Lord. Still on mission for him. Still passionate about them. When I was looking through this last night, I I thought of them. And I thought of how they gained wisdom by living true experience, by walking obedience. At a young age, they had wisdom. And now they're older like me. I wasn't much older than them. Um, I was probably about five years older than them. And now they're in their... uh, robust 50s and faithfully walking with God. And so I want to ask everybody that is older in the room this morning. Is your faith wavering? The only way for your faith to thrive once again is to walk in obedience with God. And when you do it, the favor of God 
comes upon your life. It's interesting. I love the second thing that we see about resolve, resolves result. They gain wisdom and experience of faithfulness. Secondly, God grants the faithful what they need. Verse 17 says, as for these four youths, God gave them. God gave them what they needed. And it was learning in all the literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding. God gave him that of visions and dreams. Their convictions to walk in God's truth led to the favor of God to be upon their life. And that favor of God came upon their life because they loved and walked in the scriptures. So three years have passed. Verses 18 through 20 come, and they're going to stand now after the re-education program. They're going to stand before Nebuchadnezzar. We just read it a while ago, but I want to mark this point. If you're a young student in the room, you're in sixth grade, you're in university, you're in late high school, middle school, whatever, whatever age that you are, our lives should be marked by excellence far surpassing any lost person in in our business, on our club team, on our sports team. Our lives should be marked by excellence. And their lives were marked by excellence because of their godliness. I want you to note that it was their godliness that made them unique. And their godliness led them to desire, okay, we're not going back to Judah. We got to make this work in Babylon. How do we make this work in Babylon? We're going to make this work in Babylon as we should have in in Judah to walk with God in obedience. And then God will bless that, and that blessing will be incredibly powerful upon our lives. I love what Nebuchadnezzar says about them. None was found. None was found in the whole kingdom outside of these four now 15- and 16-year-old boys, or men now. The true faithful stand out most, and they are vastly different because of the obedience to God. Here's the last thing. Under resolves result, there was an enduring faithfulness that was connected to their lives. Look at verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. We don't know about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We don't know what happened to them along the way. Um, We'll encounter them in a few weeks when they stand before Nebuchadnezzar's image. We'll see that great story about them in the fiery furnace. We don't know about them, but we know about Daniel. Daniel lived through these Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar, for 43 years. The king after Nebuchadnezzar had a son called Evil Merodach. I don't think that's good to have your first name called Evil, but that was his name. Daniel served under him for two years. He's not mentioned in the Bible. Three of the kings that Daniel served under, we learn about them um, from history. The Bible doesn't mention them. The next one he served under was Nerigalisser, served under him for four years. Nabonidus, he's not mentioned in Daniel. He served under him for 17 years. Nabonidus had a son called Belshazzar. You can read about him in Daniel chapter 5. That's where the kingdom of Babylon falls that night and uh, Darius the Mede takes over um, the kingdom. Daniel served under two Persian kings, Darius the Mede and Cyrus of Persia. Now hear this as we finish this morning. Daniel spent 70 years 
in the courts of Babylonian kings and Mede and Persian kings. It appears that he never returned to Judah. Daniel chapter 6 verse 28 says this, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel, well likely in his 80s when he dies, would have lived his entire life as an exile in a strange place and he kept his faith solid those 70 years. And I wondered about my own life. Would I be willing to accept that kind of faith? Does Jesus mean that much to me? To faithfully live the remainder of my days, not following Doke's plan, but following God's plan. Because my plan just is going to be littered with enough money in the bank, comfort, no stress with bills, no stress with family, no health issues. That's what our plan is. God's plan is, I'd like to make you be like my son. And that's the treasure that we need to long for. I want to close with two pictures. I don't fish anymore. I used to fish. But let's go fishing. We go to a place where there's a lot of trees that are there and we have our fishing pole and our license because you have to have a license because there's game wardens. And we walk in there and there's a pond in there and it's kind of cool in there. Some of the sun's kind of coming through the trees and the pond that's there and it's just beautiful. It seems to be teeming and alive with things and, and you, you throw your rod and reel out there and you catch something and you release it and in, in about a two-hour time, you can walk around the entire circumference of that pond and you can fish and enjoy it. But something you can hear just sounds kind of familiar, but it's not coming from the pond. And you notice when you're walking around the pond that there was kind of an opening in some of the trees that led further. And you kind of wondered when you passed by, I wonder what leads down that road. So you decide after you've gone over the entire circumference, it's been a good experience, been comfortable and good to walk down that trail. And you walk down that trail and you eventually come to the place where the trees are no more and you're standing before the ocean that is deep, it's majestic, it's powerful, never-ending movement of water and power and authority. And I want to just paint this picture for us we can live life at the pond it's good or we can stand before the ocean and be in awe and I think for many Christians we have lived our lives playing it safe and it's time to get back on the beach and to be in awe of the majesty and the depth and the power and the authority of God. And to know that he is worth it to walk with our entire lives. Regardless of circumstances. Regardless of anything else. Here's the last picture. 
1983, Australia hosted an ultra marathon. See if anybody wants to sign up for this today. 573.7 miles. It's going to be from Sydney to Melbourne. It's a race that takes days to run. Professionals from all over the world trained and came to participate. Shortly before the race began, a 61-year-old farmer by the name of Cliff Young was wearing overalls and galoshes over his boots. Walked up to the registration table and requested our number to enter the race. The people at the table thought this was a joke and uh, that somebody was setting them up, so they laughed at him. But Cliff said, no, I really would like to run in the race. So they gave him a number and they pinned his number on his overalls. Can you picture that in your head? All, everybody else in running shorts and he's got overalls. He's got boots on and galoshes over his boots. So Cliff Young walked over to the start of the race and all the other professional runners who were decked out and all their running and regalia looked at him and, like he was crazy. The crowd kind of giggled and laughed. They laughed even more when the gun went off and the race began because all of those professional runners with sculpted bodies and beautiful strides, but Cliff Young didn't have any of that. He didn't even run like a runner. He ran with an awkward, goofy-looking shuffle. And all through the crowd, people were laughing, and finally someone called out to him, Get that old fool off the track. Five days... 14 hours and four minutes later at 1.25 in the morning, Cliff Young shuffled across the finish line of the 573.7-mile ultramarathon. He had won the race. And he didn't win by a matter of minutes or even an hour or two. The second-place runner was nine hours and 56 minutes behind him. He had set a new world ultramarathon record. Obviously, the press, you know, the press, they wanted to know what, what in the world happened. So they run up to him and asked him about his special running shoes that he had on. They rummaged through his backpack wondering, what did he survive on? He lived on pumpkin seeds and water. And then they discovered the secret to his success. Cliff had shuffled his way to victory without ever sleeping over those five days. The other professional runners would run 18 hours and sleep for six. So for those five days and those hours, he didn't sleep. And he won at age 61. I read the story years ago. I've been saving it for this morning, I guess. It doesn't matter the age. It matters about the heart. It matters about the faithfulness. It matters about the willingness to endure and to treasure Jesus above the highest treasure. That's how Daniel lived and thrived under evil kings. And eventually this king, we don't know, we don't know anything really ultimately about it. But this King Cyrus, do you know what God does? I think he probably observed Daniel in the favor that had been on Daniel's life for a long time. Do you know what Cyrus eventually does? 
he funds and pays for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. You see, you never know what God's going to do with our life if we will just be faithful. And probably none of us are going to have books written about us. It's probably not going to be the case for us. Somebody's not going to preach about us one day. But who cares? Because when we step into the presence of King Jesus, it will be absolutely worth every ounce of energy that we gave to pursue Jesus. It will be worth it. So those are some early principles. How do you live in a strange land? From four young boys who turn into young teenagers. Let's pray.